and welcome to the second episode of the Tree Project Dorothy Hogg Life and Legacy podcast series. I'm Eva Goring from the Scottish Goldsmiths Trust, and this podcast series has been developed to highlight the impact and legacy of the late Dorothy Hogg MBE and her influential time leading the jewellery and silversmithing department at Edinburgh College of Art. The participants in this project were selected by Dorothy alongside her friend, curator Amanda Gain. For more information on this project and all those involved, head over to our website www.scottishgoldsmithstrust.org. In this episode, I'm joined by Anna Gordon and Katie Hackney. Welcome. Thanks both of you for joining us. Let's start with some introductions. My name is Anna Gordon. I am the head of the BA course in silversmithing and jewellery design at the Glasgow School of Art. And I'm also a designer maker of jewellery. And I graduated from Edinburgh College of Art, my undergraduate in 93, and then I did a master's. So I finished in 94. I'm Katie Hackney and I was at Edinburgh and graduated in 1989, I believe, and I do a multitude of things. I teach at Central St. Martin's on the jewellery course. I teach predominantly first years. I also have my own practice, but I do, I design with a knitwear designer and I do work for films, um, researching and making so yeah I'm all over the place. (laughs) Thinking back from your time just starting at Edinburgh College of Art can you tell me about what led you to apply and study at ECA what made you want to choose specialised in jewellery and then also a bit about what you remember about the department. So I I always wanted to go to art school I think it was something um, kind of in me I'm from a family of musicians so we're not sort of conventional sort of uh, job um, prospects family really um, but art school was kind of on my radar from the very beginning I was determined to get in I remember my art teacher saying that you know it's very competitive you know you need to be you need to have a plan b and I just completely panicked I thought plan b I don't have a plan b and I went and did um, life drawing classes and all this extra work to get my portfolio together because I was just absolutely determined that that's what I wanted to do but I had no idea when I got there what then would happen I think I just knew that I wanted to be in that space and then in that in those days you did a general first year so I knew I was going to do a bit of everything but I had ideas I might want to do painting or printmaking or perhaps um, something like interior design so that was where I was sitting um, when I first applied and then Edinburgh I guess I'm from Fife, so it wasn't far away, but it was far enough away that I could leave home. Um, I, I was I was looking at Scottish schools. I'd been in Edinburgh, I'd seen degree shows actually, and sort of looking back, I think jewellery might have been in there. I had a friend, um, Pamela Murray, at school. Her family had a small jewellery business in Bernie Estate in Fife. And I remember visiting her and seeing her parents. They had this, it was like a courtyard with potter and a stained glass artist and I just remember thinking it was like um, some magical sort of wonderland going into this place where everybody was making all these all the it was basically a kind of craft arts and crafts sort of setup and so there was definitely making with my hands and I've always made things three-dimensional objects I think and that's something that I've done since I was a kid so 
that was my that's what I was going in with other than other than that I didn't have any preconceptions Mm. and what was it about you know when you're on that general course what made you want to decide to specialize in jewelry I think Dorothy did a brilliant job of seducing you even if you weren't interested she would lay out actually I'm sure your pieces were on the table Katie she would lay that bench out on the third floor with all this amazing work and um Katie had made a rocket. Remember your rocket ship with the dog <laughs> that went to the moon? <laughs> I remember seeing all these things and just thinking, it kind of opened my eyes to a discipline um, that it wasn't just about making objects that were worn on the body. It was, it was, it was bigger than that. And it was kind of more interesting in a way than, than what I'd already seen. It was more diverse. Um, and I thought, actually, this, the scale appealed to me. You know, it was something you could hold in your hand. And I suppose objects that I'd made previous to that had always been kind of handheld little figures or, you know, carved wooden toys or, you know, it was things um, that I'd made at home. My dad was a pattern maker in the shipyard, so he had a wood workshop at home. So I was always in there tinkering away, making things. He sort of fixed musical instruments and things like that. So it was quite precise work. So I was... um, under supervision, I was allowed in there. It wasn't a space I could just had, had free reign of, but it was something that I really enjoyed doing. So it was a scale as well. So I think that idea of going into a workshop and seeing all the tools, it was familiar. I felt like I know this This feels a smell of things, like, you know, when you have things at the, the machine shop, that smell of the oil and, the, and metal. It was kind of familiar. I thought, well, this smells a little, you know, I know what this is. I think there was almost an immediate, like, yeah, I quite like it in here. Uh, just thinking what you're, almost everything you said is so familiar, like almost the same. It was about leaving home, but not really going that far. And just never, it wasn't really, um, I don't think I even thought about it. It was just like, I that was what I was going to do. It was just, I made things. And again, it was scale. I made small things at home as a child all the time just things from clay things from bits of paper and sometimes I I did make jewellery at one point I made lots of jewellery out of paper and my dad took it into work and sold it to his all the people in the like the typists and all those old-fashioned jobs yeah I just kind of had always done it even though after that sort of first year which is I suppose is like the foundation year in in a Scottish college but it wasn't called that. You tried out lots of things, but almost everything I did, I tried ceramics, I did sculpture. I thought I wanted to do sculpture right until I think almost the day, the day that you had to decide. I was like, oh, I don't know which one to do. And my mum had been a jeweler. So I had been in her workshop, had all her tools or could get all her tools. And it just sort of felt like it just kind of, I just slipped in and thought that was the the thing I should do because and and I think it was scale and it wasn't really about jewelry it was about making small because I was never you know I had the opportunity doing painting and sculpture and even printmaking at Edinburgh but it was always quite small what I did yeah and jewelry is small sculptures yeah so it was it was just about making things out of anything you wanted in a small scale and and again you you said Anna about the Dorothy sort of 
enticing you, luring you in. Um, she did a good job of that. But she was, I think, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think her first year was, as head, was my first year at college. She might have started the year before, when I did my first year. I think it might have been her first year. So she was new as well, and she was really keen, obviously. But you know, I I got, I I came in and to the. I remember going to the interview really clearly because Dorothy kind of started off by giving me a warning because <laughs> I was sort of renowned for being a bit late and uh, she was like we we know what you're like we've heard we've done some research on you and you've got to promise that if you you can't be like this if you're going to come to us but then still managed to persuade me that it was the department to study in. Obviously she managed to keep that energy going for for decades you know that was I think some you know, people that we've interviewed who were part of her last group of students, you know, it was that absolute excitement she had that lured them into that department because that enthusiasm and just, yeah, it was infectious. She was like that about, I mean, even the last time I met her in Edinburgh, I bumped into her in the, I can't remember what gallery, I was in a cafe in a gallery with my daughter and She'd been knitting with kids, doing Sankar glove knitting. She saw me, I didn't see her, and she came racing over, like, with these gloves on, going, instead of kind of going, hello, she was like, look what we've been making. So it was, you know, she was so excited about it and passing on the the tradition and trying to keep that going mm. and working with kids, I think. So, she, yeah, she did keep it, keep going. I think she loved that idea of, of children as well coming through and, and having permission almost to make things for a living. It felt like, you know, you make these things, well, I did it in my own time. It wasn't something I ever did in art and school. You know, art and school for me was life drawing or or still life or, you know, I think I did a little bit of ceramics, but anything 3D for me was things I did at home and it was my own little world. And then you get to art school or art college and you're, it's almost like, I can do this this is actually I could do this for a living I can make all these all these things that I love doing in my own time because I didn't have any experience of contemporary jewelry I didn't realize that that was even a thing and how broad it was and if you think of where we were in the sort of 70s and 80s and that revolution of materiality and it, it suddenly it was allowed it, I think that was what was exciting for me you know I can do this this thing and you learn obviously the meta working skills and all of that but it was more about it could be made of anything and it can be anything. It, there was the rules were really really open, um, and I see it with with children coming through in workshops that Dot had done. And I think probably also she worked with the kids in Lathlin School. I think she had quite often would bring them into into the department now and again. You know, I think that sort of thing doesn't happen anymore. But I think she just really loved that idea. She could just, you know, if you made a decision you wanted to bring a bunch of kids in, you just did it. You didn't need to fill out a risk assessment form or anything like that. There wasn't any no. of them. In, in, no. no. <laughs> Some of the things we used to do at college now, thinking on it now, you're like, Ooh. She did a lot of that with the incorporation of goldsmiths. We founded the Scottish Goldsmiths Trust. She was a member for, for many, many years and we've got lots of pictures on file of Dorothy leading workshops with children. She was so good at that. Thinking about your time, actually, then you've, you've selected jewellery and you, you've gone into to your second year um, with the focus on jewellery. 
And thinking about your time over those next years, what was it like in that department? What do you remember? Being that you mentioned Katie about you know being phoned if you were you were late. Um, what was the kind of ethos in there about working? And I think it was it was just encouraged to do anything you wanted at any point. Like I remember staying really late because it was there was only six or seven of us. And as as we went on through the years, obviously you kind of the stress level racked up towards the final degree show. But just I just remember it being like a group of us that would be in there doing whatever we wanted. And if there was anything like I remember mentioning or saying to Dorothy, I quite like to use a piece of this material or try this out. And then the next morning she'd be like, right. I know where we're going to get this and you can, you know, we'll get it. You can do it. You can try it. She was very hands-on as well. Like she'd always be in the workshop. There was an office, but it was always open. You could just wander in and out. There was no kind of barriers between her office and, and us. And just, just encouragement of, of being able to try. If, if she could get her hands on something that you wanted to try you could do it and again I think there was that there was a much less health and safety <laughs> than than there is now so we would be doing you know just go open the window and let the fumes go out from this really toxic chemicals that we were like oh, thinking about it now I think because of that I think I was a bit of a slow starter and I, I did I was lazy and didn't go in as much as I should have and blah 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 but I, she was so encouraging that I just ploughed through just producing loads and loads of, I really enjoyed all the testing and the sampling. And I used to make all these sample boards that I think Dorothy held on to for ages and just trying things. And, and I don't think she ever said, you know, there's, there's certain techniques that are meant to be done in a certain way. And she would just say, well, just do whatever you want and see what happens. Like, and we did. And so it's there, Eric's, I remember experimenting a lot, just experimenting for weeks. I think that was massively encouraged as well. There wasn't a right or a wrong answer. And, you know, that journey was the important bit. I think um, it wasn't a means to an end. It was, let's see where you end up. <laughs> let's see what happens with this material. I mean, I remember, did you do, you did the Platinum Award, didn't you? there was a competition called the Platinum Award that was sponsored by a company called Ayrton Metals and they gave you a troy ounce of platinum if you were selected as one of the shortlisted winners you got 31 grams of platinum and I think up to a certain amount in other materials and I had tried to create this piece um, I'd made pieces in silver that had been I wanted them to look like they, they had been drawn on the surface. So I'd, I'd taken a big file on the silver and, and hacked the silver up and then rubbed it back and oxidised it so that you got these lines that looked like cross-hatching, a bit like an etching. But of course, I then wanted to recreate this in platinum. I'd done the design board without even thinking platinum doesn't oxidise or do anything. So I was, I was thinking I'd sent the design off and got my troy ounce of platinum. And I'm thinking, how on earth am I going to get this surface, this this sort of painterly or, or drawn surface on the, onto the metal. And I, so I just did the same thing. I just got the same file and started hacking this platinum up. I think it's the first time I've seen Dorothy slightly like, <gasps> you know, what are you doing? I said, I need to get this this surface. And then, then we 
piled up some gold and fused the gold into the surface and rubbed it all back. You know, so we were working with the surface of the platinum in the same way as we would work with a bit of silver or I mean silver at the time wasn't expensive, but you know, silver or copper or you know, it wasn't treated in a different way. So there was that sort of freedom not to think not to sort of balk at something too much and just, you know, give it a go and see what happens. And actually you ended up with much more expressive work, that idea of creating and you know that marrying drawing and making I think was a big thing about you know that liveliness of the of the sketchbooks and all the sampling in the final piece so that you weren't designing something very rigid and then making something that was very rigid she was very keen on keeping that expressive quality I think. I remember I think one thing that really stands out in my head was um, Malcolm Appleby coming in did he come to see you as well? And he was just like, it was like the, like a performance, like some man turned up with a big trunk. And I think he probably did the same thing for each year, but you didn't know that. And he, it was, it was like, there was that atmosphere in the department of you being able to kind of do whatever, you know, it wasn't rigid or controlled, but he would come in and make it just complete chaos, but such fun at the same time. And I really remember him coming in and just having such a laugh and making tools. Like we made um, engraving tools with him and engraving into steel and just like playing. And and it didn't feel, you know, we learned a lot, but you didn't feel like you were learning. You just thought you were having a a fun week with with this interesting um, person. So yeah, and because and, they were at college together at their old college, so they were friends. So yeah, he would he would just sort of come. I think they hitchhiked. They hitchhiked across Scotland together one summer. I think. I was going to talk about um the sort of dynamic, I guess. So you've got Dorothy, who's sort of on the head of the the ship, and then you had Bill, who was very technical and kind of you didn't mess with Bill <laughs> he was I mean if you thought Dorothy was kind of strict Bill didn't take any any at all you know he had his bench probably not the same I don't know if it was like this when you were there Katie he had a bench in the middle of the the workshop and you all had to stand around his bench and he'd had it specially made had all these drawers and when he was doing a demonstration it was like a performance you know he'd sort of pull the drawer out and then something would be in a box and he'd open the box and he'd unwrap the thing inside the box and then take something out and then it'd be another box and then you know you're waiting to see what this thing is and I remember doing raising and hand raising and they're all around his desk and he opens this box and takes it out and eventually after opening and revealing about two or three different boxes and then finding a little sort of felt wrapped article, this tiny little egg appeared <laughs> with a hinge on it. <laughs> and this was him, this this is hand raising. <laughs> Just kind of, you know, there was an element of trying to I suppose ambition. He was wanting to make you look at things that were almost impossible for us to make at that stage and, and aspire to be that good. So there was a technical element to the course. I definitely felt that Bill sort of led the charge on that. He was the sort of techniques man and really diligent and didn't take any shortcuts. You learned things the 100% proper way. Yeah, he was so technically proficient and, yeah, you had to make things properly. But I'd forgotten about that. We had to make boxes. We made eggs, which, yeah... Um, and yeah, proper little silver boxes 
and things with hinges. But I, I remember when you were talking about him, I remember him looking at something I'd made and saying something like you've put enough solder in there to sink a battleship because I used to just blast, just like fill holes with solder. And he was all about getting everything absolutely precise. Like the silver boxes we made were round and they had an angle. Mitered, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you didn't butt solder. You just you mitered it all really carefully. And he'd send you back. He'd look at it with a loop. No, go and do it again, do it again. So there was, yeah, there was the two sides of making going on in tandem. And Hugh as well, the technician, was so lovely and so helpful. And he'd do lots of casting. And mm. He was good for making tools as well. If you needed a tool, they'd just turn something down or... I remember kind of having free reign to that workshop. They had all this, the metal, the sort of steel, and you could just grab a bit of steel and put it on the electric saw and cut a bit off and make, if you needed a tool for something, you just could knock one up. <laughs> and, be, be, you know, no sort of official induction. You just got on with it in that tiny little machine shop. I think that's because there was the, num the numbers were so small that if somebody did want to go and do something like that, somebody could sort of quickly show you and then it wasn't like there's loads of people needing attention at the same time. I loved the storeroom. Do you remember the storeroom through past the office? There was a storeroom and Dorothy was a great one for just, if anybody had anything that they were getting rid of, she would take it. So she had a big bag of wood that an instrument maker had, had offcuts, little bits of hardwood. And that would be in the store. And then the scrap metal was all in the store. You know, if you had worked on something and it was a disaster, you could put it in the scrap bin. And there was all sorts of stuff. I think she was a real hoarder and kind of collector of materials, but it was such a brilliant resource. If you weren't sure about something or you, were, you had an idea, but you weren't quite sure what materials you wanted to use, you could go into that store and have a rummage and see and try things. So... You didn't have to think, oh, it might work in wood, I better go and order some wood, or maybe I need a bit of copper wire, or, you know, every, there was a real resource there of materials, like a kind of materials library almost, of stuff that was just free to use. It was all recycled from other departments and um, people she knew. I think she, it was um, the instrument maker, I think it had been a friend of, of Lachlan's, who donated all the stuff, things that were too small for what he was doing. But for us, bits of wood that size were, that was a brooch. I find that really inspiring because if you were stuck, you weren't sort of just sitting with a bit of paper and your pencil. You actually could go and find some materials and, and practice and do testing in three dimensions. Did either of you do any sort of internships or work experience opportunities while you were at ECA? A lot of the things that happened, happened through her relationships with people. I went to Hamlin and worked with a German jewellery company called Manu. And that relationship was basically through um, Inhorgenta. I think we'd been on the stand the year before and one of the students was drawing. And they approached and said, what are you, what are you drawing? And she goes, I'm just here with the art college and we're... And they got chatting and it was a tiny little company. And then from then on in, they would invite a couple of people over every summer to work with them. And it was a family business in Hamlin and it was, you know, an amazing setup. So I did that one summer. I worked for Weston Beemore one summer with Lorna, actually. Lorna was working there at the time. 
And I went on exchange to Finland in my, I think, I think it was maybe my third year. And actually I went with a printmaker. So myself and a, a, net, a printmaker from Edinburgh went over and I actually did quite a lot of printmaking over there. That again, you went to this college, and there was a. It was in Lahti. It's a jewellery school, but they had a printmaking and fine art area as well. And because of my lack of Finnish and their lack of English, I kind of was fairly feral. I could go where I wanted. So actually, I ended up in the printmaking department and did quite a lot of drawing and printmaking there. Um, and actually, classic Dorothy. I went back, and you know, you had to present what you'd done when I was away. And I felt slightly guilty, saying I haven't really made any jewellery. But um, I had designed jewellery and intended to make it and I'd asked for some, you know, put an order in with the technician for some gold wire and some silver tube. And I was given a, a bag of scrap jewellery for the silver and the same for the gold. So I spent my whole time melting it down, making she, making tube, you know, so I had made tube and I'd made wire, but I hadn't done anything with it. But she just got really excited that I'd done all this other drawing and, and printmaking. So, you know, she saw the value in it, even though, it wasn't sort of an expected thing to do when I was away. I thought I might have been in a wee bit of trouble for not having, you know, <laughs> jewellery. But I was looking, I was looking and observing and taking it in and doing something with that information. And I think that was the thing that was valuable um, in her eyes. What a great experience, Anna. Katie, can you tell me a bit about your degree show and what you remember from your work at that time? That is so different to what I do now it feels like another person so the degree show was in the it wasn't in college it was in what was that place called the city arts center down by Waverley yeah so yeah it felt it was kind of a real it was quite strange to exhibit out of just having to get everything down there and my work was quite looking back at it now it was all about animals and dogs and things, which now I'm like, hmm, was that me? Uh, <laughs> but it was quite experimental, I guess. I just kind of made loads and loads of things that I wanted to do from all my drawings. I did loads of drawings in my books of funny scenarios, the sort of cartoons. And I did a lot of my drawings were three dimensional. I remember getting a, you, know, you had to, you maybe had to give make a presentation drawing like a paint up and I was like I don't want to do this because it was just I don't know I just didn't want to do it so I turned it all around and started doing these things with clay and pushing drawing into clay pouring dental plaster in, and turning it around and then drawing and painting like a paint up in three dimensions sort of or maybe two dimensions so I had these great big slabs of cast plaster on the walls of drawings and I made frames and I made this spaceship and I made all these things. And I think I filled my showcase full of gravel or something. I was just like, it, but Dorothy was all the way kind of go, yeah, yeah, do it, do it, do it. And and I was like, yeah, I just really went for it. And so I've made almost this little environment and popped everything in on this big pile of gravel. But I remember it was a really good experience getting out of college and going into this venue and it felt really kind of important and special um, instead of setting up in one of the rooms in the college, which often happens. Um, and I sold loads of it. I was really surprised. I wasn't prepared for that at all. I sold tons of it and I was a bit like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I want to sell it, but we 
really carefully that was another thing Dorothy really helped us price our work and really consider it and so yeah I sold loads of it and I think that was a really good lesson almost that because you kind of don't really think that much about it when you're at college you're just doing doing what you want to do and then suddenly you're exposed and people people want it and did you have quite a lot of drawing your drawings were obviously the wall pieces yeah yeah it was quite a focus on that I remember degree shows weren't just your jewellery, you had a portfolio, and the portfolio wasn't a portfolio of designs, it was just your drawing or your your research or the sampling or a mixture of, it could be kind of any mashup of, of any of those things, but it was expected that you would, you would show that alongside the work, so there was a sort of context to what you would Yeah, it showed the process the, the, of what you've been doing rather than just the finished article. I had, I mean, I had, I was in the college actually. We were in the what is now where what was the lecture theatre. Um, but I did second subject. I did a second subject in stained glass. Did you do second subject, Katie? Well, mine was silversmithing. That's why I made that spaceship because I was like, I'm like, because silversmithing would be taught by Bill and would be raising really carefully, and and I realise now how awkward I was all along and I was just like well I'm doing silversmithing but I'm not going to use any silversmithing techniques so I got lots and lots of sheets of metal and started riveting them together to see how big I could go and then I was like oh I don't really want to do this as an abstract thing so that's I made some things out of metal that were bigger than jewellery and one of them happened to be a spaceship (laughs) so that was my second object because I I did um Stained glass, and actually, my exchange year have quite heavily influenced my stained glass. My stained glass windows were all based on the etchings that I'd done when I was in Finland. So I had sort of stained glass, and then the the jewelry. But my jewelry was all kinetic, it all moved, and I suppose that has carried through my work now. It still has that element. I remember having long discussions with Dot about how we were going to make the case move so that all the things would move because there were sort of boxes that had moving elements in the top. So they only moved if, if you were walking or if it, you know, if you, if you knocked the case, <laughs> they would all shimmer. So we had a long discussion about how we did that. And in the end, my dad made a case that had a little spring mechanism that you just pulled a string and it was just enough to create a slight judder in the case and then everything would start moving. So, but, uh, you know, again, lots of sales and then new designers going down to London. We did that. And that feels like, gosh, a long, long time ago, I was having a chat with our current director in the art school. Um, and actually, we both won a Habitat Award the same year. I hadn't realised we were in the same photograph and <laughs> no newspaper clipping. But um, And that was based on the drawings. So the drawing, the portfolio that I presented of, I did quite a lot of still life drawing. And it was just about composition, really. It was about objects and, and you know, and it was oils and I scratched into the oil paint. It was all quite expressive. Um, but you took that portfolio with the designers and they were really interested in in the drawing. I think they liked the jewellery, but the drawing was the thing that, that had sparked their interest. And I won this Habitat Prize and then worked for them for quite a long time, actually, freelance, doing all sorts of things, nothing to do with jewellery, which was quite exciting at the time so what were you designing I was designing I started off 
I did a swatch book for them to start with, and it was all about metal finishes. So it's basically saying, like, okay, if we make candlesticks or, I don't know, furniture legs, what different surfaces could we put on them? So I did, th- I mean, it felt like, I did feel like I was getting paid to do nothing, really. I was sort of saying, well, here's a scotch bright finish and here's a sandblasted finish. So it's just about how can you treat the surface of metal to create different finishes. So I started off doing that. Um, and then I did some designing of things like the metal work pieces or candlesticks and um, boxes. And they used to have quite a lot of tableware and, you know, not just functional things. So I did quite a lot of that. And then I did Christmas cards for a long time. I think I sent them a Christmas card one year that I'd made and they said, oh, could you do some? And again, I'm a bit like what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, I was making things and getting paid to do it. Because it wasn't my designs, I wasn't a textile artist who'd created a surface pattern that was then going on everything. I didn't feel like I was being exploited or used in any way. I felt like I was able to add something to their repertoire that that was just a, a small part of what I did. And it was it was I suppose it was earning money. And when you when you first graduate, you know you sell your work at degree show, but you have to keep that momentum going. And it was a good way for me to to get started and it opened my eyes up also to diversification I thought it doesn't have to be jewellery I can do all sorts of things that these skills that I have can transfer into all sorts of other things and I think that's something as a teacher today that I'm still saying to students you know just because you've learned this skill doesn't mean that that can make you good at this 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 and this just think about what that's given you as a, a toolkit I think you're particularly that I'm just thinking of all the things that you've done I know it's um, it confuses a lot of people when and and some, if I meet somebody new and they say what do you do it's like I'm not quite sure and sometimes it's easier just there's no point in talking about it all because it's too much but um it's also working with people I think is part of the why I've ended up doing what I've ended up doing you know you opportunities come up because of who you meet or who you know. I just always go, oh, yeah, try that. Try, I like to try all sorts of things. So, Katie, from from when you graduated at ECA, can you plot some of those different experiences? Then I went to the Royal College and um, Dorothy made me apply. <laughs> she was like, right now, you are going to do this. And I was like, oh, am I? I didn't have like a, this is what I want to do and this is my plan. I didn't have a goal in life I just wanted I just knew I liked making so she was like okay now you're going to go to the Royal College and made me make my portfolio and I worked you know I worked really really hard and I remember making making the actual portfolio and making everything she had this ceremony that she did where everybody had to kiss the portfolio before it went off and then I got in and it was like oh okay because I didn't really I don't know, so stupidly didn't think I would get in. So I did that, went to the Royal College for two years and then basically that was me in London and I didn't go back. Then after the Royal College, I set up a workshop with three other jewellers, two who I was with at the Royal College, Claire Underwood and Noon Mitchell Hill. And then Liz Bone was looking for a workshop at the same time as us at Cockpit. So we got a studio cockpit and then I was there for maybe 10 years. So in that time, I was making small batch production jewellery. I kind of was scrambling to make money, basically. So I did go into kind of cast silver jewellery production 
and was selling it in liberties and all sorts of shops and then just decided I hated doing that it was just you know working in a little mini factory and then I started going back to experimenting with materials and then because of I think that was a kind of knock-on like using different materials and making jewellery from bits of old toothbrush and a piece of spectacle cellulose acetate and wood I sold the pieces, but obviously they were all one-off. They were kind of like um, studio art jewellery. I moved back into that world and then started doing other jobs to kind of supplement the just needing to earn a living. So I started teaching. Then at one point I set up a shop with a friend, Jane, who's a costume designer. And then we decided that we didn't want to do that anymore. Um, It was an elaborate hobby that got out of control And then I started working with her in costume. She asked me to do research one day. She said, you're really nosy and I think you can do this. And I'm she had two jobs uh, on the go, two film jobs, and she was doing that film Suffragette. And I did all the research for her and made pieces for it. And then it just kind of grew. And then I started working for lots of other costume designers doing research and making. And while I was in cockpit, I met Jo Gordon, who has a small knit she sells knitwear and I used to go in and out of her studio a lot because we were right next door to each other and then 15 years later she was like oh do you want to come and help me design I think I don't want to just do it on my own anymore so I started working with her so yeah it just um spread 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 out and um it's I really like it I really like working with costume designers I like working with Joe and working teaching at St Martin's with the people that I teach with so it's all it's like the collaboration. I'm sort of thinking back to your experience or our experience with Dorothy and the idea of anything goes and saying yes to anything there was never a kind of no you can't do that and that's maybe I can see a thread through your life. Yeah I mean and at times it can be really full-on because because there's certain times of the year when I'm teaching a lot and then if I'm doing a film job and then if Joe wants me to do some design work it's like seven days a week but you know it comes it's like all freelance work it comes and goes so you you do it when it's there so yeah but I I, I really I like where I've got to but I didn't plan it <laughs> it just sort of happened Guess are the things that you're making with the costume designers are they jewelry or is it other objects? Yeah, they are. I mean, some of it is really varied. Like, say, I've done. Sometimes it has to be historically accurate. So, like for suffragette, I did quite a lot of the obviously pins and things. Or they would say, "There's this piece of, say, a brooch that we have got photos of, and we think it looks like this. Can you work it out and then recreate it?" or I did I worked on the crown as well I did loads of research for Jane for that which was fascinating because it was really it was a very small period of time really and we were looking at the shapes of the shapes of the costumes of what people wore over a very short period of time and getting it really really right but then there would be something from a photograph again that had to be recreated and also there was a big masked ball in it and Jane just said, do you want to come in? We'll set up an arts and crafts table, she called it. And we got this massive table in the studio. And we had to, 
what was fun about that was it was a costume ball in the 19 late 1950s so the costumes would have been made and they weren't you know something that had to be copied and it was an under the sea ball and we had to make enough fancy dress costumes for about 100 people and we just got loads of stuff and glue guns and whack banged it all together and made masks with scallop shells and you know had I had a team of people working with me just going right we'll put that together glue get that on get that on and it was like really full-on fast-paced and then sometimes I've done I've done quite a lot of headpieces and crowns weirdly we worked on the king which was a thing with Timothy Chalamet and he had a crown but we didn't Jane uh, Petrie who I work with a lot didn't she didn't mind if it wasn't completely historically accurate but it had to look obviously of the right period we did lots of crowns and loads of big I suppose they'd be like chains of office when people we used to wear almost like mayoral chains but we made them out of um loads and loads of brass fittings from a there's a shop um not far from where I live that sells leather but it also has loads and loads of old stock of buckles and studs and all these things made of brass so we just made these huge things from old some of them are horse brasses and all sorts of things and that was a massive production and then recently I worked on a science fiction 20,000 years in the future so we you can just make it up you can just you know obviously there's loads of research and kind of there was seven different planets that had to look very different and I would make a few samples of the oh, there's this planet that's all wet and mossy and there's that planet that's hard and dark and I made up, we bought different materials and made up things and then there was a, the costume props people downstairs were kind of making more of the same. So it's it's really different. It's, it, it's so varied and, yeah, sometimes Jane might just send me a picture of a, a piece of embroidery and say I want a necklace for a a 16th century queen from a piece of embroidery and I'm like ah but um she's got great faith in me I think more faith than I do and just likes to throw things at me and see what happens it is really good fun when it's going but it's sort of terrifying at the same time because you don't have it's not like being you know anal you'll know like you're in your studio and you can just kind of play around with things and put them to the side and leave them there almost for years but with this, it's like, right, we've got two weeks and you have to do it. Sometimes I think the analogy was holding on to the side of a runaway train <laughs> with, with your fingernails. I I get um uh, somebody that I teach with sometimes who lives really close by. He, he sometimes helps me with making because I can't physically make everything. He so likes to screw everything together and make everything really beautifully, which you do when you're making a piece of jewellery but I'm just like do you know what you we don't have time for this you've just got to get it to you know use really low melt solder and whack it together really quickly and he's often quite horrified by that and I have to really you know say this is the budget this is the time you you can't you know you go you go back on everything that you believe in is you know making something really beautifully front and back can't do that in film work very often Anna, do you want to pick up from where you were talking about what happened after Habitat? Well, I went back to study. I did a master's in Edinburgh 
I then did new designers again. It's <laughs> a sort of repeat year. And actually, I then started to develop quite um, a good client base. I think, you know, I sold really well, particularly at new designers. Degree show I sold, but I remember new designers was kind of transformative. I remember thinking, gosh, there's people here that have money. <laughs> you know, you price something up, and you think nobody's ever going to buy that, you know, and then if they don't think twice about it. I remember having a moment of just because I can't afford my own work doesn't mean there aren't people out there that can. I think having done a master's and developing the work was really useful for me. It had that, it gave me an extra year, I think, to build confidence in my own practice. And then I did a residency. I'd actually always done a bit of teaching with Dot. She'd kind of always pulled me in if somebody was off sick. I remember teaching second subject. When I was doing my master's, I actually taught second subject jewellery on a Friday. And I didn't, I don't ever remember getting paid for it. I just did it because she asked me to, you know, that kind of like, okay then. <laughs> but I remember, you know, Francis Priest, ceramic artist, she was one of my students. I really sort of joke about it. I said, I remember you. Because I can, I can actually see the jewellery aesthetic in her ceramic. I said, I can see how that might have influenced. I actually really enjoyed it. I then got a studio in Edinburgh with Anne Little and Emma Gale, who were two years below so they were just graduating when I by the time I'd done my master's and I did two years artist in residence by the time I'd done that and was leaving they were leaving and we set up a studio together and I was in that studio for about 10 years and really loved it it's just a, it was a wasp studio in Dalry in Edinburgh um, and I was living nearby and then I got a call I got a call from Dot first this is the classic Dorothy you get the forewarning you're going to get you're going to get a call from Glasgow <laughs> and I said oh right okay so she'd been approached um, and they were looking for somebody to cover Jack Cunningham who was doing a PhD at the time so he was paid a day a week funding to pay for somebody to come in to allow him time out just to, to study for, to, for his PhD Roger Miller came to see me in my studio Talked to Edgy, speak to me. I didn't understand what he was saying. To start with, you know, he said, we've got a point two FTE, blah, 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 blah. I just had to say, speak English. I don't know what, you, I don't know what, you, what, what you're asking me. And he said, oh, one day a week. And I thought, actually, that would be, yes, please. That would be great, a nice thing to do. Because I had, after graduating in that 10 years, I had done quite a lot of teaching. I did con ed classes. I taught summer schools. I went in to do bits and pieces with DOT, project work, things like that. So it's always something that I quite enjoyed and had had done as a sort of, it supplemented my, my pay, I guess. It was a sort of steady income. So I'd done bits and pieces and when that job came up at Glasgow, I thought, yeah, I could do that. And that just kind of crept up a bit like what you were saying, Katie, I didn't plan it. It just kind of happened. <laughs> I also did things. I went to Aberystwyth. I did a residency there. Yeah, lots of things. Chelsea Craft Fair used to do that every year. A regular. I've never done Goldsmiths. Um, Goldsmiths was always at the same time as Chelsea, and I never felt my work was precious enough. Goldsmiths was quite a sort of grand affair back then. It felt like a much more precious jewellery fair, whereas now I think it's taken the space of what Bluefair Chelsea Craft Fair was back in the nineties. I would say. I guess I was just open to things. I was doing the freelance work for Habitat. I was doing exhibitions. It was an exciting time, and it felt kind of um, all, even after graduation. Dot was always still there. You would always get the notes and the kind of phone calls. So it didn't stop when you left. There was always a sort of contact. And bear in mind, there was no email at that point. It was it was all it was letters. You got letters and cards and and I saw this in the newspaper and thought of you kind of <laughs> it would arrive, you know. So there was this there was a sort of contact all the time. And I think that feeling 
of not wanting to let her down was still there. Yeah. You know, you still felt like, oh gosh, yeah, you know, she's she's still in the background watching her flock, if you like. Yeah, and then going into education. I mean, I'm from my parents were teachers, you know, we were from a sort of music and the arts really, but they they taught. So it was familiar territory for me going into teaching, but teaching in higher education was was new. I like teaching students because I don't feel, you know, in a school environment there's much more other stuff going on. Whereas I think students come in and they're good and they want to do it. It's a really fulfilling environment. You can really nurture people through. And if people don't work hard and don't do it, it's it's kind of sad, but it's not. It's kind of on them really. And I think it's nice to have that freedom to kind of not feel that you have to get you know, people they're responsible for themselves. They're adults, I guess. And by the time you get to art school, they want to be there. You know, I think there's also that. So there are highs and lows. You know, I mean, Katie and I have worked together. Yeah, I've been working down at Central St Martin, so you know, we're familiar with the changes. It's quite different now, I'd say, to how we were with students. What do you think some of those main changes are compared to, you know, I guess maybe the autonomy that Dorothy had compared to what you deal with? But are there ways that you can kind of continue Dorothy's legacy of teaching through your own work? Yeah, I mean, I think that trying to, I think they're encouraging the students to just you do, there is no right and wrong. But you kind of say that and then you're like, Ooh, you know, we did have a policy at Jeremy Till had a policy at college of that there are no rules but actually there are some but I think yeah that encouraging the students that there isn't because they quite often think that you know all the answers you're there to facilitate them finding out what their answers are because there isn't a right and wrong and trying to try to keep that going I think is a a Dorothy thing you know just what do you want to do and and go for it it's it's difficult because I think the culture now is that there's what's the formula, and that there actually isn't a formula. <laughs> you know, at the moment we're revalidating and rewriting coursework, and you you're looking at things like learning outcomes. I'm thinking, I don't even know if I could have told you if we had any of those when I was a student. You know, could you have told you what your assessment criteria and your learning outcomes were? Making making work, you just made work, and you would talk about it. And if you had a, you know, being assessed, I remember being assessed and sitting in a room with Bill and Dorothy and they would have the workout or Sue might be there, you know, they'd have the workout and they would talk about the work and talk about why it was good or not good. It wasn't about just getting a grade and feedback. It was actually, you had a conversation about it and it made you understand why something hadn't worked. And normally you agreed, you kind of knew when you make something that hasn't worked, you know, pretty much right away. You, you became quite um particular and diligent about getting things right you know all those testing is a, is a means to an end to getting something right and knowing that the first thing isn't going to be the right thing you have to kind of there's a process of failure that is required to get to the good stuff yeah I think yeah that that you saying that about the failure we talk about that a lot with the students it's like you you have to make mistakes you I think there's that often not always but just like the fear of making mistakes and and wanting to just say right well I've, I've, I want to do this and I'm going to make it and it's going to be great and not going through the process of multiple mistakes and tests or something you might do and you might just go that's not the direction I want to go in you have to turn back around and go back to research or things, things take time it feels like things people want more immediacy they want things to happen 
without without much backup, much to kind of hold it. I think this grades thing, I mean, I'd love to remove grades from the whole thing. If you could just make work and and not be thinking about what do I need to get an A or I think the grades make it kind of disable creativity sometimes. That might not be a popular thing to say, but I, I sort of I remember one year we had we had a, an assessment point. It wasn't a final assessment point, but we used to issue grades. And I asked our registry if we could just not issue grades at that point, just give them feedback. And they said, "Well, yeah, that's fine." And actually, as soon as we did that, you could see the 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 environment changed, and the students were much more receptive and less worried about making the mistakes they sort of realized actually this is part of a journey it's not the end isn't and it's never the end it's never a full stop you don't get to final year and that's it stopped so those that errors and and learning through making or trying or having the courage to 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 give it a go happens throughout your whole career you know we don't have all the answers ever (laughs) so yeah i think i think it's a shame that it's become quite grades focused Student numbers also don't help. I think numbers are are tricky because you don't get that same relationship with students, you know. How many students do you have in the departments you teach in now? I think on average, they start off just over 40, about 42, 43. It has been more and it has been less. We're about half that. It's actually quite a difficult thing to analyse because, you know, when you're a student, you're a student, you're looking at it up the way. And when you're an academic member of staff, you're in a different position. So I spoke about this with Sue Cross and said, actually, she would be a good person to ask because she was there. She's been there throughout the the whole journey, if you like. And... I think similar to parenting, you take with you what you what you've learned. So, you know, we'll be doing things, Katie, that we learn as students because you 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 kind of copy and and emulate things that you know worked for you. So I think that culture coming through is really strong. And I see it in institutions. I did a little bit of a a mapping exercise of people who'd been taught by DOT and in education and people who've been taught by DOT or taught by people who were taught by DOT, you know, that kind of, and they're in every institution in the UK. There's somebody in every single specialist silver something jewellery course in the UK that's been either taught by DOT or taught by somebody who taught DOT. You know, it's it's kind of everywhere. You start sort of tallying it up and then you realise actually, well, they were Glasgow, but yeah, they were taught by Dorothy and Dundee or you know whatever she had been there's definitely um really really strong threads in education is there anything that you feel like you want to speak a little bit more about or go back to it's quite interesting there's been a quite a few themes arise through the conversations uh, and one of them was all was around Dorothy's ability to kind of focus in on the specific needs of the student uh, and how everyone learns differently and in different ways and that she was really good at being able to identify that and then another theme was also her vast network and how she would be able to pair people you know uh, even if it wasn't in jewelry it would be you know a, a designer or a, a different opportunity that might might benefit that that student so thinking about that network thing I think her kind of ability, a lot of the time the network, it wasn't people that she just knew. She had no fear in just going and asking for things. So, you know, I remember they were they were having a platinum exhibition at the museum in Chamber Street. 
they needed funding. And she came in one morning and she'd managed to get funding from like the Royal Bank of Scotland or something. And she said, well, I was walking home last night and I noticed they had a platinum account. So I just went in and asked to speak to the bank manager. And, you know, conversation later, they'd, they'd sponsored the exhibition or they'd given money towards it. It was things like that. You just thought confidence just to, to do it was sort of admirable. And, you know, things like the, the connection with the company in Germany, Manu, it was a conversation on a trade stand. And the next moment we were sending students every summer to spend, to live in their house, actually. We lived, we lived in the family home with these people and then worked small casting production jewellery. Um, but it was, you know, really amazing experience. But that sort of one conversation, a nugget, a nugget of an idea, a nugget of potential would then be, it was never discarded. It was always kind of like, how can we get the most out of this? Or, but all of that time and energy and effort, and actually she was relentless in terms of um, work ethic. And I think retrospectively speaking to her, when she was ill, you know, she, it was one of the things she said, you know, don't, she kept saying to me, don't burn yourself out, you know, and I'm thinking that's rich coming from you. You know, she was the one that was always pushing me, but I think there, were, there was a point in the end where she thought maybe she should have, t- you know, not been quite so relentless. Yeah. Relentless. Relentless is, is quite, I suppose, a harsh word, but it was it, exactly that she was thinking about and it wasn't just thinking about jewellery all the time. It was thinking about the students and the department and her teaching and other people all the time to try and get whatever she could to help them. But she was, I mean, jewellery was her, I think, as well. Like I I told, I can't remember who I was speaking to. It might have been Amanda, but about, we used to live when I was in third year. I lived in Stockbridge with two other students from the college and used the same supermarket as her and her husband and used to kind of go, oh, like, just like, I've just got out. And then I remember her once, um, I remember once walking in and seeing her with a star fruit standing in the fruit and veg department. And she did this thing. I don't know if you, like, there's a, she would go like this. Yeah. <laughs> she was and she'd do that and we'd all go, Oh, here she goes again. So she'd pick up, I don't know, if you were making something and go, Oh, could it be an earring? Could it be a neck? Could it be a brooch? And she had this thing and she was standing in the supermarket doing it with a piece of fruit to Lachlan and he was just kind of going, Yeah. <laughs> he was like, Oh, that's a memory of you know, it, it even she went with it to the supermarket. It was everywhere with her. You'll probably find that that star fruit was then on the bench in the college the following morning. They're working with kids as well, I think. Um, I remember when she did the residency at the V&A and I took my daughter and she was tiny. She was like maybe pre-primary age, I think. And Dorothy gave her so much attention and kind of like, right, we're doing this. I think it was like an... There was loads of stuff going on in the in the museum and there was loads of things to do and make and she kind of got Nancy and was like, right, you're going to make this and you're going to do that. And she was, the, you know, at the stage where she was just beginning to make things and it was just so lovely that she gave everybody the time and the attention, no matter who they were, um, I think it was very Dorothy. Yeah, she did similar in National Museums of Scotland. I remember taking the boys in. Again, they were certainly young primary age 
one public preschool at the time and effort and they were twisting wire with the drill and stamping things into shim and they were all festooned in their <laughs> they left dripping in jewelry and just the joy she, you know she clearly just loved that reaction you get when you work with kids and they they get it you know there's a, yeah. there's a moment where the light comes on and you could see that focus and I think that was something that she strived for in in kids but also in the students because there is a moment where you, you your brain clicks and you just totally get it and then you become that obsessed <laughs> maker that we have become you know the kind of it's all I want to do and I'll be here till 10 o'clock at night or, or overnight or whatever it is she was very good. She did the thing with the, the objects. I totally remember that, Katie. It was like, you know, is it, is it a buckle? <laughs> is it a hip ornament? <laughs> she was very good at promoting the students. If you're in a, a situation like a degree show or a new designs, whatever, she would introduce you, but she wouldn't just introduce you as you. She would say, this is Anna Gordon. She won the Platinum Award, blah, blah, blah. Or this is Katie Hatton. And Katie's at the Royal College of Art. And, uh, you know, there was always a kind of, like, like your mother would do. <laughs> You were just like you were just slightly mortified going over. Yeah, that kind of like go and speak to that person. Very good at throwing you in at the deep end a bit as well. I've been in situations where I remember being at the there was an exhibition of Bill's work after he died and the Scottish Gallery and they had an evening of talk chat and I popped along. At, you know, I wasn't sure even I was able to go, but I popped along. And and up there, and I, just before you know what's happened, she's saying, "So Anna, Anna, can you tell the group what it was like to, to learn under Bill?" And I was completely unprepared. You just you step up and do it because she's asked you to do it. But um, you're always aware that at any moment you might be asked to do something. One of the things that kind of strikes me, uh, speaking, you know, and obviously the people that have been selected for these interviews, you know, have a range of careers. But something that I keep coming back to is just like the confidence that they had confidence in their abilities to be able to take up some really incredible opportunities. Like almost straight after graduating, whether it had been, you know, working for a, a company in the Philippines or, you know, working in design, it seemed that the skills that you learned on that degree gave you enough confidence to be able to think, oh, yes, I can do a job like that or I can take up an opportunity like that. Was that about that or was it really a lot of, you know, Dorothy being that kind of enthusiast and champion of you? Maybe a bit. I mean, I think Dorothy did, she did encourage everyone to just go for it. And I don't ever remember her saying, oh, no, you can't do this, or you can't do that. It was like, do this, do this, do that, and just kind of crack on with it and do it. And I suppose that must have instilled confidence that you could do anything. Yeah, I think she pushed you to do things outside your comfort zone a bit yeah. as well. There was that all the time. And I, th I think if that happens quite a lot, you realise actually what's the worst that would happen. I was fairly fearless at college. Social and cultural time was different. Students, you know, we had funding and felt freer probably than students feel today. I don't know if you felt that, Casey, but I felt, you know, art school was kind of a big adventure and I didn't feel scared of graduating or what am I going to do next I just thought oh, I don't know what I'm going to do next but it'll work itself out in my head I just thought you know I didn't have any plan or any if somebody said to me what will you be doing in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years if somebody said I'd be sitting here now in this conversation I would have been yeah, I wouldn't have believed you you know it's it's it, none of it was planned but I do think she was kind of in the background all the time 
you know, I talk about her being like Master Yoda. She was always in the background. Even when she's, even now, she's still there. You know, I still get what we don't do. And there's a, a level of, of quality that you have to maintain. And, and there's a kind of, I still feel there's a level of quality and a legacy that you have to maintain. I feel a responsibility for that, mm. I think. And that's not a bad thing. It sounds like it's a huge weight. But I think it just pushes you to be better and to try and maintain that quality. And I mean, that's more and more difficult with financial challenges in education and all of those things. But that was one thing. The other thing was also just to keep making your own work. I think that idea of stopping, I mean, a lot of people who work in education, especially people who work full time, don't make a lot of their own work anymore. In order to make your own work, you have to kind of be doing it in your own time, really. And that a lot of people think, well, I've got a full-time job, I'm not doing that. Whereas I've always kept that thread of, I have to be doing that other thing to make me a better teacher. I have to be doing it in order to be able to have a conversation with the student. It's a difficult thing to keep going, but it's something that is really intrinsic to me. And actually, it's something, as a person, even though I'm working in education, the making is the thing that's got me there. And it's making is the thing that I would do if I had to choose one thing to do in my life. Yeah, I agree. It's hard and there's it's like just fitting everything in, but it can be done, just, even if it's just a, a little bit here and a little bit there. It's not about having a show every year. It's just about maybe making one thing or there's something on your bench still, work in progress. It's still, it's a kind of measure of my mental health if I'm making something or not. I know that my husband, he'll be like, you've not been in the workshop for a while, are you okay? <laughs> something like COVID wasn't in the workshop at all. And it was an interesting observation because he was saying, you should be, you know, Instagram's full of people going, oh, yeah, I'm not work. I'm just making stuff like, you know, for me, I lost my confidence in the risk taking. I think because everything else was such so awful. And, you know, you're managing the situation with students. It was so difficult and you couldn't. It felt like an impossible situation. I thought, if I go into the workshop and start making something and, and it doesn't go right. <laughs> I don't think I can handle another thing going wrong. I think I was, it was kind of self-preservation. I thought I need to just focus on this because I, I can't be taking risks on something else at the moment. I think the same. I, do, I, I felt the same. So many people were like, oh, I learned a new skill. I did this, I did that. And I was like, oh. Only afterwards I, I, sort of thought, I thought, why didn't I, why didn't I make more use of that time? It, it, it just felt to me, um, it was survival mode. It was too difficult a time to be have that space that's the first time I've had that chunk of time such a big chunk of time I haven't made anything and then I came out of it quite um productive thanks Katie and Anna it's been so wonderful speaking with you today and thank you very much for taking part in the podcast we'll add some links and images on our website on the project page at www.scottishgoldsmithstrust.org but before we go is there anything else that you'd like to add or say especially about Dorothy I mean I think I I think if I hadn't been taught by Dorothy I wouldn't be where I am today which you know you kind of hear that said a lot in different contexts but I I do truly think that that I don't know what I would have done because she really pushed me and saw something that I didn't see and just was like do you've got to do this and with quite a quite a forceful she was she was although she was very kind and calm it, it was done with um a lot of grit and force at the same time and I really value that. I completely agree I mean I've had her 
um, advice throughout my career. You know, I've, I've been in touch with her over the years, and you know, if I've ever not been sure about something, I would ask her. <laughs> and I think it's given me the confidence to do what I'm doing now. I don't think I would have had the confidence or the drive or the yeah, I just wouldn't have thought it was possible, I think. So she gave me that. I think confidence is a big thing. You were mentioning it earlier. Yeah, but it's probably true. I think what was lovely about the exhibition in London was seeing all those people again. And the, even if there are people like Lorna, it wasn't in my year. So I didn't really, I knew of her, but I didn't really know her. But I then immediately, she was involved in the Ghost, the Ghostmas Centre. They used to come and judge the prize prizes at new designers every year and there was an immediate connection when I met her to Dot it was it was like oh you know you you were at Edinburgh and I was at Edinburgh there was, you know it, it felt familiar immediately and um, the conversations that we could have about work and things it was it was lovely and you know she's somebody that I've got to know since then so there are people that weren't in my graduating the year I know now but might be before or after but the connections through study I mean mm-hmm.